For early access plus exclusive content, facilitated discussions, live one-on-one Q&As, and more, become a patron at patreon.com slash brucepointset. Welcome back to the Blacktastic Adventure. I'm your host, Bruce Poinsett. And on today's episode, I speak with Joy Elise Davis, the executive director of Imagine Black. Joy Elise Davis is a Cincinnati native who graduated from Miami University with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and from Parsons School of Design with a Master of Arts in Theories of Urban Practice. She is the founder of the award-winning firm Design Culture Lab and is an associate professor at Pacific Northwest College of Art. Currently, Joy serves as the executive director of Imagine Black, where she works to help our Black community imagine the alternatives they deserve and build political participation to achieve those alternatives. When she is not winning awards, Joy enjoys spending time with her two loves, Emmy-nominated husband Rob and her Whippet Rescue. When Joy Elise gets a seat at the table, she swiftly dismantles the old furniture and makes room for more inclusive space led by Black and Indigenous folks. I'm really excited to share this interview with you all. And without further ado, check it out. Okay, so Ed, thank you for being on the show today. I'm uh, uh, so happy to be here, thanks. Yeah, so, you know, obviously you got a lot going on, you know, big uh, organizational name change to, from Paul to Imagine Black, but before we get into that, I just want to kind of start, you know, as a, you're not a native Portlander, correct? <laughs> so uh, when did you when did you move to the city and where from? Yeah, well, um, it's I moved in 2014 in May. Um, I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. Spent some time in Montego Bay, Jamaica when I was younger, um, and then found myself in New York City. So I moved here directly from from Brooklyn back in 2014. And what, what were you doing in Brooklyn? Yeah, um, if I'm honest, I think so. Like a lot of Midwestern folks, um, I was kind of over the environment and wanted a change and wanted to learn from new folks. So um, right after I finished undergrad, um, I wanted to move to, to New York. So I got a job in AmeriCorps um, in a program called Public Allies. So I was doing that for 10 months. And then I went to grad school out in New York at the new school, uh, Parsons New School for Design. Cool, cool. And what, of all the places, what brought you to Portland? Ah, you know, funny story. Um, I would give a lot of that credit to my husband, my now husband, but boyfriend at the time. He, um, when we were still in Ohio, right before I moved to New York, he uh, became obsessed with Portland, if I'm honest, Uh, excited about the Black history here and um, the creative culture. And uh, he was trying to shift from um, being involved. He was in law school at the time, but he was ready to abandon that law school kind of space and move into more of an art and creative space. So um, he ended up getting an internship here around the same time that I got a job in New York. Um, and then he just fell in love with the city and I would visit and also fell in love and moved here right after graduation. Uh, it's, it's funny. It's kind of like uh, my, my parents, uh, my mom was in New Jersey and my dad was out here and it's it, it just reminds me of that so it's kind of cool uh yeah so you know can you just talk a little bit about like your professional background and you know i know you and your husband started uh design culture lab correct could you can you just talk a little bit about the story of how that came about and or what i should say can you talk about what that is first and then you know talk about the story of how that came about yeah so um Design Culture Lab um, started right when I moved to Portland. Um, it's, uh, I like to call it a, as a collaborative design firm. Um, it's really a space to, to prototype new ways of collaborating uh, collaborating with, with folks, particularly BIPOC folks. Um, and then um, I started expanding a little bit into public involvement for the city, which is basically their um, definition of how we engage with CUNY members on civic engagement, um, helping to make decisions. Um, my background is in political science and then in urban design. So uh, most of the projects I worked on were getting, uh, were focused on collaborating with community members on built environment projects. So everything from 
new transit lines to new affordable housing units um, to some kind of non, I guess, a little bit outside of the traditional scope of the built environment to help folks connect with like tech companies. But uh, the theme has always been looking at um, culture, um, race and the intersections of a place and how we navigate cities and navigate our environment. Um, I, I mean, I was really lucky that uh, Portland is a, a great, I guess, city for that in the sense that um, just the history or I guess the on paper history of being dedicated to like the built environment and um, transportation. I keep doing quotes because uh, we also know that that's not the same history for folks who are vulnerable communities, but um, nationally, you know, Oregon is known for being really transit friendly and sustainable and all of these things that uh, when I got here, learned very quickly, um, wasn't always the case. And it was almost a tale of two cities. Um, but the firm, um, if I'm honest, when I started it, I was pretty just fresh. I didn't really know what I, I know now in the sense that um, I just know I wanted to work with nonprofits and work with government on built environment. And it kind of evolved. Um, very happy that I had some great mentors that helped me kind of understand the space um, but the story about how I got involved, um, if I'm honest, when I was in um, Ohio, when I lived in Ohio, I went to a school called Miami, Miami University of Ohio, where I studied political science. And if I'm honest, I, I hated most of it, uh, mostly because it was taught from a very like white European centric lens. Um, I found myself doing way more kind of community organizing and student organizing on my campus and really diving in um, very similar, I think, to Oregon's kind of racial um, dynamics. My school was a predominant white university. So we had a very small, tight-knit Black community. And um, the other kind of uh, BIPOC folks within that were also very small. So uh, we kind of came together a lot for shelter, for warmth, to like take care of each other, but also to navigate like a very white dominated um, upper class kind of um, school that like didn't even a little bit identify with how I grew up, which was low income and, and Black. Um, so I became, I think, on campus kind of obsessed with space and like what does safe space look like and how do we make sure that uh, folks like me um, were able to navigate spaces in a way that felt comfortable in a way that was um, super in tune with how I grew up and how I navigate space. Everything from when I go to parks or I grew up with like a big family. So we went to parks and took over spaces and kind of did some things that I'm sure the park Parks and Rec at that time probably wouldn't allow in terms of how we would navigate and hold space. Um, so then when I got a chance to go to New York, um, I honestly was just looking for a change. I didn't have the language or even the discipline to know that this was like a focus area for folks. Um, my my parents now, but at the time of going to college, um, I don't have my, my mom had just started going to college. My father wasn't in college at the time. So I wasn't really exposed to a lot of different career types or industries. Um, I knew very few things and I thought I was gonna be a lawyer just because that's all I really knew as, as an entry point for uh, fighting injustice. And uh, when I got to New York trying to really, for the first time, explore different avenues and ways of um, being and advocating for issues that I care about, um, I got kind of deeper into like nonprofits, deeper into space. Um, I'm sure it's no surprise New York is um, very much a city where uh, spatial justice is super, super important. And some of the things that we're dealing with here in Portland, New York has been dealing with as well in terms of gentrification and displacement and fighting for clean air and um, tenant rights in terms of landlords doing terrible, terrible things and uh, fighting to make sure that folks have accessible transportation. So I kind of got um, some like community education in that sense, um, being in that space and learning from different kind of activists and nonprofits and um, when I finished the program, which uh, the AmeriCorps program was 10 months, um, at the very end, I got an offer. I was looking for ways to stay in New York, to be quite honest. I was like, I need to find a job. I need to go to school. I need to do something because New York was too expensive and I wasn't interested in going back to Ohio. And I also, I knew I had something else to learn from the city. So um, I found this program, which actually uh, my husband, uh, boyfriend at the time found uh, this program at Parsons and um, it was really looking at architecture and urban planning from a different lens. It was kind of like um, a bunch of professors and architects who were kind of fed up with kind of designing in a vacuum or making big decisions on behalf of community without um, involving community. So it had a big emphasis on how do we involve community in 
designing our cities and retransforming our cities. Um, so then I learned that program and then afterwards, um, if I'm honest, I got really sick of being so far away from my, my husband and wanted a new change. And New York City is so expensive. I was looking for something that had a better quality of life and again, fell in love with Portland and it just became a natural fit for me to kind of explore um, kind of the intersection between race and space, even though I didn't really know if I'm honest still what that meant in practice. Um, I knew what it meant in theory. So in Portland, I got a chance to like try out some really exciting projects and learn a lot on the job. And um, it's still kind of a space that um, I love quite a bit. Yeah. And, you know, you said you got here in 2014 and it definitely sounds like you took a lot of, you know, just a lot of cues from, in these other spaces, especially, you know, again, spatial justice work happening in New York, because at least in my, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like the discussion around this, specifically around the um, impacts of space and like the meaning, like it feels like that's changed and gotten a little more intentional in these last few years. And I'm not sure, would you say, I guess, like, just in your time, has that conversation changed at all? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I think um, when I was first introduced to, like, from, like, an academic perspective, this space, it was still very much dominated by, like, white men, cisgendered men, and um, occasionally they would celebrate the white cisgendered women who would be in the space, like Jane Jacobs, and it would be like, oh, look at her, she did all these great things in Mm -hmm. New York, and um, if I'm honest, what Another reason that really got me excited about moving to Portland while I was in school was learning about Paul's uh, Trader Joe's protest, which I think was also like a big, t- a big um, shift, I would say, um, from my perspective of learning to be like, oh, like there's actually a, a space for Black folks to demand something more than what's given or to push back on um, projects that claim to benefit us, which actually only benefit a few of us and um, watching kind of that protests go down kind of from the other side of the country and everything from seeing um, the negative press that was given and the jokes on like late night shows to actually then meeting kind of the people who were leading that work. Uh, But yeah, there has been a shift. And I think um, I'm curious, even personally, now that we're in this global pandemic, what's going to happen in terms of spatial justice in the future? Like, what does that even look like? Um, But I I think... um, primarily when I think of spatial justice, my first lens is typically like gentrification and displacement. And I think it's, um, if I'm honest, I, this most of, especially what I've learned in Oregon, but also across the country is that just black folks and brown folks, we're experiencing so much serial displacement. It's every generation, every decade. Um, I'm even reflecting on my own being, I think I moved every year, uh, every two years since I was five. Um, so this this concept of not being able to be with community and be rooted in community, um, I think we're at like a boiling point in this moment now where people are fed up. Um, I think we're always fed up, but I think there's like other intersections that make that's making it um, exacerbating kind of the pain that we're feeling, which I think is rightfully so with like the fall of capitalism and student loans going up high and policing and environmental justice, all these things are kind of um, reaching its boiling point at the same time. And I think as we fight for space and fight for our community and fight to be rooted, um, it's impossible to ignore those other factors and how they impact this, like uh, this push and this need to do it now and stop prolonging it, so to speak. Yeah. When you talk about, you know, just being a people just being serially displaced, like I a number of people, but you know, a good friend of mine, like I remember his family started out in, you know, now it's new Columbia, but back when it was like Columbia Villa, you know, early 90s, late 80s. And I swear they've, because like he's, he's in California now, but like when he comes back to like, you know, visit his family, you know, come out and visit. And every time it's a new place and it's like for, you know, it started out, it's like, okay, going further and further and further east. And then, one, you know, one Christmas break, it's like, oh, actually, yeah, well, they're, they're out in Beaverton now. And it's like, my goodness, <laughs> just shrekking and tracking and tra- people can't really see my hands, but it's just going back and forth and just all over the map. And it's, it's wild. And we don't, you know, now we're starting to really like, you know, talk about just some of like the deeper effects. You know, I think about, uh, you know, my father used to tell me a little bit about just uh, 
you know, just like how the construction of places leads to, you know, some of these outcomes or some of these, you know, just structural disparities. And like I said, like in these just last few years, it's really, I think the conversation changing is really kind of like really, uh, that's where I'm looking for. It's just really, uh, you know, crystallized what that means. And it's starting to like, you know, you know, give credit to, you know, Paul, you know, Imagine Black and other organizations for really um, starting to give us some language around it and, you know, helping us, you know, envision how to deal with it. And uh, to, to that end, actually, you said you saw, you know, the Trader Joe's protests from across the country. Is that kind of what sparked your interest in joining Paul when you got, came to Portland? Yeah, um, I had a, a friend who was from here who introduced me to Lisa Bates. I think it was probably one of the first few folks I met. Um, and at the time, I didn't, um, I knew the organization by name, but I didn't know like Lisa Bates' role in it. Um, I knew a little bit from like reading articles like Serena Boston Ashby and Rachel Gilmer, who's now at Dream Defenders in Florida, and some of the work that they were pushing. But when I met Lisa Bates, I kind of got a deeper understanding of the unique conditions here, um, how that whole situation went down and both um, kind of the insider information of um, kind of some of the both external struggles, but also just internal struggles within the black community. I think um, there, which you, you know, we know this very often people try to uh, make it seem as if all black people agree on everything we're a monolith and we all have all the things uh, we have like one black dude who can speak on all of us and or even 10 black leaders who can speak on behalf of all of us when reality when I um, that's not the case and when I look at this project to me it seems as a, a good example of uh, reminding folks that we're not a monolith and that there are multiple ways of, of being black and um, and multiple ways of of navigating kind of the world and our blackness and we have different ideas and perspectives and politics in terms of how we think change can happen um, but when I learned about Trader Joe's and I learned with met Lisa and Serena and Rachel um, it became clear to me that um, their kind of theory of change in terms of how they believe we get closer to black liberation um, aligned really closely with mine and um, so when I met Lisa she introduced me to this project that they were about to begin called the People's Plan I mean very they had like a grant application, some high level ideas, um, but they're like, hey, there's this project and the idea is that we want to engage black people who've been um, pushed out of their neighborhoods or are being affected by gentrification and displacement. And we wanna create a plan, a list of demands that we can um, organize around in the future, a list of policy ideas. Um, and that kind of brought me in. And I think that was such a, an interesting and important like introduction to Black History in Oregon. Um, I like wish everybody got a chance to go and dive deep into this, uh, to a project like I got to work on because I got to interview folks as they talked about their serial displacement and what it was like to have their family be pushed from, you know, from Van Points being other parts of, of Portland to Northeast. And now, like you said, being pushed further and further out. Um, I got a chance to learn a little bit more from folks about um, kind of that, that pain and um, even recognizing the pain of, of, you know, new Black people moving in and not understanding and not listening. And um, I also then got a chance to vision with folks, which I think is so um, rare. I think for Black people, sometimes we are at a very young age, we're not encouraged to continue to use our imagination as often as other um, white folks. We don't get to like dive into that radical imagination and dream. And um, we've, we, I think just the last few years, it's been really exciting to see us imagine new worlds and do world building and get really sci-fi like and think about how we can change systems. But um, I know imagination just for black children is, is cut short. Um, so it was fun to just imagine new ways of being. And um, we did exercises where we thought about what the day of the life would look like if all of our needs were met. And um, it was just a really powerful and transformative project that I think um, on paper, it looks beautiful on paper, but um, going through it, I think I'm forever changed based off just talking to folks and learning and visioning. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's really powerful as far as, um, you know, just being, changing how, or isn't it changing, but, you know, helping to like influence the change and in, like even just how we do this or how we engage, how we think about this. 
And I love what you're talking about as far as like engaging the imagination because so often it's like, it feels like we're just going through the motions. We're doing the same, even, you know, okay, well, that thing, you know, people talk about it. There's a strategy people talk about that, you know, we see clips of in the 60s. Let's just follow the same playbook. And it's like, you know, they they crush that eventually, right? <laughs> we gotta we gotta keep evolving. We gotta keep so that's you know, and like imagination is such a powerful, powerful tool in that. And I love you talk about like the people's plan. I think, you know, one of the things that's really been cool about the work you all have been doing, I think it's been as far as just like being really intentional about giving people language that, you know, because not everyone obviously can be, you know, can be doing the reports, can be doing the case studies, can be digging in. They're just, you know, going about their days. But at the end of the day, it takes, you know, I don't want to say mass movements, but it takes some kind of level of like critical mass of people to, you know, make things happen. So it sort of in that vein, you just talk, uh, you talk about the people's plan, but can you just talk about some of the other uh, projects that, you know, the organization has been like, when did you, when did you transition to heading the organization actually, before we get there? Yeah. Um, so the people's plan, um, I was consulting. So my design culture lab hat was on in 2000, um, into 2014, 15, a little bit in 16. Uh, it was a long project, y'all. It took some time to, we had so many, so much data and so much like uh, feedback. It took us some time to actually translate that into policy ideas or program ideas. Um, when the project wrapped, um, I went back to my uh, consulting and some day jobs to, to survive. And um, they opened up the job application, I believe, at the beginning of 2017. Um, at first, I think like a lot of folks, I had imposter syndrome. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get this job. And um, But I fell in love with the possibilities and um, the opportunities to kind of carry the people's plan work forward. Um, so yeah, I started in June of 2017. So what is, I think this is my, I think it'll be four years in, in June, if my math is right. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I, I just, I feel very honored to have such a great team and such a great board that um, is really interested in doing something different. Um, but yeah, Imagine Black, um, we changed our name formally uh, this last uh, fall um, uh, from Portland African American Leadership Forum known as Pulse to Imagine Black. Um, we also established uh, another uh, sibling organization that's focused primarily on political um, involvement. Um, uh, we strongly believe that um, we need more Black political organizations in Oregon, that um, civic engagement can only get us so far. Um, even um, direct service can only get us so far that we actually uh, need to have a kind of a holistic infrastructure where our political work is informed by folks on the ground serving the community from a direct service um, that works alongside organizing and advocacy work and that um, other kind of groups are able to lobby at another level that Black folks just haven't had the capacity to do. Um, so we're excited that we believe we're one of the few Black organizations in the state who can endorse candidates, who can run ads on candidates, can talk about when they lie directly instead of kind of going about it in like a very nice, polite way, which is what traditional nonprofits are limited based off uh, the government in terms of how we're allowed to engage. Um, so we get to kind of wield Black power in a different way. So we, at Imagine Black, we believe in Black power, we believe in Black voter power, organizing power, advocacy. Uh, we want to like radically shift the way that we engage with the government here in Oregon, where instead of us kind of following suit to the things that um, they're willing to give us, we're actually willing to, we're excited about pushing a little bit further and electing candidates that align with our values and the things that we're pushing. So that way we don't have to spend, you know, months and years trying to convince them to do the right thing when in reality we already know that they're down and ready and we can support them in their efforts. Um, but we're doing a lot of interesting things. Um, I have, uh, we just started doing some work around um, abolition, which is a new lens for us in terms of pushing for um, the end of, of policing and prisons and ICE and reimagining another way of public safety, one that um, cares about folks because we know that the safest neighborhoods don't have more cops, but they have more resources. They have a thriving community. They're rooted. They're not, you know, kicked out every two years due to um, gentrification and displacement. Um, they have access to, to, to 
you know, schools and after school programs and a working economy where folks don't have to choose between taking care of their family or working or feeding their children and having luxury. Gosh, we believe in black luxury in the sense that we deserve to have fun and joy. And um, but some of the projects that we're working on right now is uh, we're doing some some um, kind of leadership development around abolition and teaching. So we have a great staff member who is leading a podcast right now of just exploring what abolition is and trying to um, bring folks along on a journey that we can imagine a new public safety service uh, uh, system. So very similar to kind of our theme of um, imagining new ways of being and trying to um, use tools to get us there. Um, so we're doing that work. Um, we're also doing some work in an environmental justice space, um, also trying to, uh, with, along with our partners and other like-minded nonprofits, um, joining kind of them in fighting for um, free transit. Uh, we believe that, um, again, the safest neighborhoods have the most resources and for folks to be able to navigate uh, this state effectively, um, we need to completely make it free to use TriMet and uh, going beyond a youth pass, but really making it for everyone of every age, income, economic background and race, really being able to navigate. Um, we're currently also working on a childcare campaign with um, some amazing organizations where uh, we're trying on the state level to get uh, free childcare for everyone, regardless of their income and background and um, a system that allows for choice. So if you're someone who prefers to have like an auntie take care of your kids, we wanna make sure that auntie is paid through the government and is valued. If you prefer to send your kid to a childcare center, we wanna make sure that space is safe and not causing harms, particularly to black and brown children where they're um, being told like, you know, at a very young age, like before they're even able to uh, gosh, do math or something like that, that they're not good enough and need to conform. So there's um, looking at kind of the, the preschool to prison pipeline and starting really, really young at childcare and making sure they're taken care of. Um, so we, we envision, yeah, that parents don't have to choose between quality care and uh, working if they want to and making sure their children are um, taken care of in a way that's not exploitive or so focused on um, and so obsessed, I guess, with just um, kind of education is important, but also thinking about like the wellness of the child, if I'm honest, like the health of the social kind of health of children. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of, I guess, really interesting and exciting things. We also recently launched our first membership program, which we're very excited about. Um, I think in the past, folks have always who rocked with us have kind of just said they're a member of, of POF, but we've never really had a way to engage mm -hmm. with them. Uh, so now it's like, okay, we finally have a way to do that. Um, and I mentioned earlier about our endorsement process. This um, this spring is the first time we're going to be endorsing a school board, um, some uh, someone who's going to be running for school board, a candidate. And this is something that our members are actually going to help us decide what that looks like instead of deciding that kind of in a vacuum. We want folks to join us in interviewing and asking questions and voting and uh, telling us who they prefer in terms of candidates that uh, need to support our children. Um, so yeah, we're excited to kind of flex our um, our kind of political muscles, but then also I think be more intentional about organizing our black community, um, which um, which is no disrespect, but I think our old model was a little bit more um, organizing black organizations and like black professionals. And uh, we shifted into really organizing um, Black folks who are vulnerable, Black folks who are um, impacted by decisions that we make. And uh, we have this thing called a Black queer feminist lens, which basically means that we center Black folks who are most impacted, um, not just in listening, but also in decision makings. And um, it's one of those things that we're learning about and trying to practice and trying to create tools. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's a shift from organizing kind of more privileged Black folks to actually organizing folks who are typically left out of the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of alluded there to just, you know, the politics and limitations of a lot of, you know, you know, the famous term or is, you know, we call it, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex. And I think what's really refreshing, you know, about what Imagine Black is doing is just showing people, wait, we can, you know, can I get back to, you know, just using your imagination? No, we can do these things. We can serve. We don't have to compromise, you know, the integrity of the work. And especially from and taking it to, you know, having a sister organization that does like political or politics. 
one thing I've seen, you know, on one hand, it feels like we have a lot of these, you know, because in Oregon, there's still all these places to have Black first. So, you know, in all these elections, but so often as the case is when, you know, the can- or campaign season's coming up, it's having, to be honest, some white people in name a community saying, hey, you're Black and you like speaking in public. You should run for office. And then, like, that person might be the face, but all the instruction that's happening, everything that's happening behind the scenes, it's still coming from a very white lens and coming from, in some cases, you know, at the end of a white leash, if we're being real about it. So building that infrastructure that says, no, like these people, not just are going to be out there, but it's coming with like the community behind them. You know, it's a game changer. Um, But, you know, kind of getting to the politics or to other uh, political matters, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, this past summer, they definitely, they saw sort of like iconic picture, you know, the Burnside Bridge protests. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Paul for the time was very vocal, you know, you're talking about sort of the abolitionist lens and Paul was very vocal on defunding the police, which I know is, you know, when you talk about the politics of nonprofits, you know, a lot of people didn't want to step out there and do that. So you just talk about kind of like, that decision to say, no, we're going to put, you know, our political muscle behind this and we're not going to, um, you know, police unions, local politicians, et cetera, et cetera, you know, put a lot of pressure on people. So you can just talk about, you know, the decision to resist that. Yeah. Um, It was kind of organic at the time in our organization. Um, Looking back, I think there, I, putting on like my ED hat. Um, I wish we had enough time to engage deeply with folks to have this conversation before we made the shift. I will own that as my bad. <laughs> but what we did is uh, staff, um, we had a small staff at the time. There was three of us, if I'm not mistaken, including myself. Um, and we were asked to speak at one of those big kind of Burnside Bridge. I think one of, you know, the little photograph where all these people are on it. Hmm. Um, I got asked um, by the folks at the Rose City uh, justice crew, if I could speak on, uh, just speak. They didn't really give me a lot of parameters. Um, so I pulled kind of um, our amazing comms folks and our digital organizer, and we started writing and Lisa Bates, we started writing the speech. And um, in the past, particularly I'm thinking about our people's plan, uh, we pushed, there was a lot of reform in that people's plan. Uh, we pushed for for changes and more trainings. And uh, for the police, we, we pushed for um, kind of getting, well, some things that we've always pushed for is getting rid of those very terrible, um, like the gang enforcement units and, and things that, that never served us. But, in be, but before we were pushing kind of policy changes that will um, kind of take power away from, from the police. Um, but, and again, I would say really trying to, I would, I wouldn't say compromise, but we were pushing um, an agenda that I think as staff members, uh, we just thought that was what we were allowed to do, if that makes sense. So we're writing this, we're writing this speech together in a Google Doc, and we kind of like digitally looked at each other like, wait a minute, we all kind of believe that this, this, this is not working, that, you know, police were, were created uh, to do harm. They were created to, to hurt Black people in particular. Um, they have grown into this fraternity of of that's not focused on care, that's not focused on people, that's really um, coming after a crime has, has taken place and um, causing more crime, causing and I, murdering people, hurting people. And um, that was, I think within our staff, we all have, we're all in different places in our journey with abolition. Um, for me, I am a daughter of a pastor and a police officer, and I have like tons of cops in my family. So I grew up with a very different lens and had a lot of unlearning and um, realizations that no matter how many black cops we have, it's not gonna change the system of the fact that it is designed to hurt black people and brown people and um, the, the larger public. Um, so we were writing the speech and 
we were fed up. We were like, I think most black folks were pissed off and hurt. And at this moment we were like, we need to cut the police budget was our first, was our first thought. We were following organizations, um, national ones like the Movement for Black Lives, which we were really intentional about aligning with during the People's Plan and some other folks around the country who were pushing um, and also some local folks, I mean, pushing for defunding and abolition is not a new concept for a lot of black community groups um, here in Oregon. And uh, we were kind of late to the party, so to speak, and we didn't want to center ourselves, but we did want to align that um, it wasn't working. And, um, and we believe that no matter the investment into our current police system, into our current prison system, um, it's not going to make it better. We're still harming folks in we think we can imagine something different. There's a lot of smart people who've been thinking about this and been creating new systems for decades. And um, I think we're at the point now where saying we need to defund the police is no longer a scary word. I think it used to be a scary word. Uh, saying that we want to, you know, abolish police used to be like uh, a thing that only like super radical left people said. And everyone's like, oh, that sounds cute, but that's not realistic. And I think we're like, no, it's actually realistic. It's actually achievable. Um, I, I'm often thinking about um, Sometimes it's hard to imagine, I think for folks, a world without police. Um, and I'm like, well, we also, we've had, we've created new systems um, all the time. I remember when we didn't have ICE um, and now people can't imagine what ICE is. I'm like, yo, y'all, we used to not have it. Not that it was perfect before, don't get me wrong. We were still, America was still doing terrible, terrible things, but um, we can't deny that this new scary fraternity, this evil fraternity of ICE um, was designed and created in our lifetime and can be completely dismantled in our lifetime. Um, so I, it was um, an exciting kind of moment for us. It was scary, if I'm honest, in terms of safety to be able to put ourselves out there and say that we um, are pushing. Um, gosh, I remember being very nervous about everything from like, who's going to follow me home or I need to be mindful of like, if my address is anywhere or like, how is it, how comfortable and how, how um, easy it is to find where I live just because I was, I was nervous. White supremacists do what white supremacists do. And I, I was nervous and our staff was nervous about our, our security. Um, but I, I think we were fueled by listening to folks on the street that it, like enough is enough. And uh, we were able to do some really interesting wins in collaboration with folks. Uh, we got some, some things cut from the budget. We won some things. Uh, we didn't get everything that we want, obviously, because uh, the police department is still here in Portland. But um, our goal is that we want, you know, at least 50 million cut every single year until it's it's a zero of the budget. And um, we believe that there are other ways and that we should be taking things away from the police in that interim that they have no business managing or responding to. Um, I know we've seen some interesting things in terms of people talking about ideas of what would it look like if you're having a mental health crisis for mental health professionals to show up and not cops. Um, if you're having, um, if you're in the middle of a domestic dispute that you actually have counselors show up and folks who are actually gonna help you and take care of you instead of leading with arrest and, um, and harm and um, from someone who's dealt with that personally, that, that doesn't help. Um, folks who imagine, you know, going down the street and having your broken taillight and instead of someone coming and arresting you um, and, and harming you and potentially killing you, actually someone coming and helping you change your, your light bulb and actually helping to make sure that you're okay. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's sad to me that I think our media has created this like false idea of what our policing system is, that they're out there solving crimes and it's like law and order and they're doing all these things, but they're not doing any of those things. They're coming afterwards. And um, cops don't, from my perspective and data shows, they don't stop crime. They show up afterwards to help mediate it or to help fix the situation. And they don't even do that very well. Um, no, they don't do that very well. Um, so I am I think it has kind of opened up a whole new world for us to look at things like uh, from an organization perspective, police contracts and um, how do we take um, power away as we move us closer to our vision. Uh, we also know that abolition is like a, a learning. Um, it requires a lot of learning and practicing. It, it requires failing and checking yourself. Um, I think personally, I had, a, I had a hard time thinking, um, especially thinking about like, Brianna Taylor's murderers and you know in my heart I was like I want them locked up I want them to never be around ever again but I was like Joy is that actually gonna what is that gonna actually fix um so it's it's has been challenging me to think about the system and the individual um but also um you know challenging me to 
to think that, you know, the same system that oppresses us can't be the same system that gives us justice and recognizing that um, there's a new way for us to think about justice through transformative justice and restorative justice and other forms of healing that actually gets closer to what our society needs instead of torturing people in prisons and locking them up. And um, so it's, it's been, it's a constant practice that I know I fail at, at times and I get held accountable with folks who I care about and folks in the community. And I think um, it's also something that I think is very achievable in our lifetime. Um, and I'm hoping that we get to the point where we can start taking these roles away from the cops and building new kind of um, systems of care that meet those needs. Um, but again, the, the safest communities don't have more cops, they have more resources. So how do we actually take those resources from cops and give them to the programs and the projects and uh, the spaces that need it the most that can alleviate um, some of the pain and the impacts of those pains that we're seeing, especially in a time like COVID. Like we should not be giving cops more money in COVID. That sounds absurd to me. Like we should be investing in keeping people housed, making sure we can cancel the rent, making sure that folks are able to feed themselves and pay electricity and stay warm and take care of themselves. But none of those things involve cops. And uh, that's not what our community and our country and our world needs right now. Yeah, and I think, um, one, you know, you talked about not getting as much of the cuts, you know, as people wanted and whatnot, but I do think it's fair to say that, you know, all the organizations, all the people went out there and really, you know, pushed this conversation of abolition, pushed this conversation of defunding the police, that, like you said, it helped change the narrative. It helped, I guess, I don't want to say people have been seeding the narrative, but again, it's kind of like speaking to giving people language. Like I, one of the things I, you know, as a media person, I just I study communication all the time. And I thought what was really cool about what you all were doing was just like how many people saw just those pictures of, you know, different people, different black people holding signs, being like defund the police, invest in community, you know, just like, you know, just bite-sized enough, but still explaining exactly what you need people to understand because so often the, you know, the framing in, you know, larger media, it gets, it's like defund the police. Well, if you say defund the police, you mean one people say, well, that means abolish the police and let, you know, the world turn into Mad Max. That's, that's the argument you get on TV versus what you're saying here is like, no, the police, they respond to crime. Fundamentally, they respond to crime, right? Or they respond to incidents. So they don't actually solve anything. They don't prevent anything. They often do a very poor job when they get there. <laughs> so if we want to, like, if you're worried about your safety, you're worried about whatever, it would make more sense to invest in, you know, preventative stuff. It make more sense to invest in resources for people in communities, like you said, you know, I grew up in Lake Oswego. I, I feel like I understand, you know, even though they have this sort of like reputation with the police of like, no call too small. And, you know, they put a bunch of stories in the newspaper about, you know, someone calling about ghosts and cats and stuff. But then there's the other stuff that happens that isn't reported or just the mass harassment of black and brown people. But again, that, that's another story. Cool. But it's just, you know, when we start actually, like when we don't see the narrative, we don't see these assumptions and we challenge people to say, okay, so what do police really do? What is the fundamental, you know, or what, what's happening in your community? Like if you're in one of these, you know, white well-to-do communities, what's your relationship with the police like? Why is it like that? Mm-hmm. What is the fact that you have all these other things? Like, and making people really have to sit with that is, you know, again, just, I think with the, the communication of it, because again, like I said, it's not a new concept. It's not new ideas, but how do you present them? How do you, you know, I have a friend, an abolitionist friend who I was talking with about, you know, we spend all these time working on, and you were even talking about, like, you know, working on the speeches for these events and no one ever remembers what you said. They they remember how you made them feel, you know, I, someone that's 
famous quote from someone, why can't I remember who right now? But, you know, but at the same time, there is some level of getting these ideas out there and making it stick with people that, you know, there's a strategy to that. There's a skill to that. So it's not really a question there other than saying, I really, you know, <laughs> I really did appreciate just, you know, how many times I saw those pictures, how many times I just saw the language and seeing people, you know, again, because I think in these spaces of, you know, whether it's official media or even social media, whatever communications, we're in the business of kind of like, uh, giving people language, giving people permission to, you know, advocate for what they believe in by, like I said, giving them language. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a, you know, important work of what you all do. So thanks for that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I, gosh, our comp team is so great. I wish I could, I wish I was more involved in that team, but yeah, they, they really wanted it to feel accessible and easy and, um, I think also um, I will I will share that there's like a spectrum to um, defunding. Some folks want to defund to shrink and keep police, and some folks like myself are interested in defunding to like abolish completely. And um, I think what was interesting last summer and last fall was that folks that I never expected to be interested in all came together to be like, oh, something's gonna have to change. And some of them were like, we need to shrink it down till it, you know, till it's a really really small budget. Uh, and that's what they felt comfortable in. And some folks, like I guess myself, were interested in like 50 million every year until it's gone. Um, but it was it was interesting finding folks come together in a way that I've never expected. Um, folks that I assumed were on another political spectrum were coming out and being like, this is, you know, this is BS. This is not right. Nothing less than getting rid of these people will do. I mean, gosh, the videos alone, which I only watched a few of them because they were very triggering for me. But of people getting pushed and kicked and beat up by police by simply just walking in the street. I, I think a lot of folks who have never experienced that violence or never seen that violence or seen or had a friend or a family member experience it were completely shocked. And at that moment, they also came to the conclusion that there's no reason these folks should be have should have this much power. Like it's it's um, I'm not interested in living in a militarized state, um, and and we're we're there. Um, so it's a I think we're in an interesting moment. I hope the momentum keeps going. I hope folks are, um, like, for example, you know, right now we we cut the 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 contract between the city of Portland and TriMet around policing ended, but TriMet right now is still trying to get other people to pay for to have cops on on their on their buses and their the max stations and like are very dedicated to finding other funding and you know that that means that we have way more work to do um we we know that cops are not going to keep us safe on trimet um there's there's another way and um it's it's interesting and i just i really hope that we continue the momentum way beyond it being trendy or sexy or whatever kind of the interesting kind of feels that that we had or the feelings that we had this summer i hope we um, we don't stop organizing and stop. Um, I hope we don't stop raising our voices and being pissed off. If I'm quite honest. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested to see just you know where we can take you know the conversation. Even you know, like you acknowledge, we're all coming from like different spaces in terms of like our you know journey or our engagement with the idea of abolition. I know. I, I remember when I was working at the scanner, I interviewed this group, Decolonize PDX. And it was the, you know, it was the first time I had really engaged with the idea of, you know, let's no, let's abolish prisons. Like I, you know, I remember just thinking, this, uh, are you sure? Really? Uh, you know? And yeah. you know, so it's interesting, like the fast forward to again 2021, and where a lot of these are, you know, somewhat mainstream conversations, at least with the ideas, you know, maybe it's not completely accepted mainstream, but it's a conversation that people are having. And, you know, again, it's getting harder to, you know, someone that was like on, you know, on the fence or was like, uh, I don't know. Each year goes by and it's like, yeah, it's getting harder to be like, why, why? Why am I defending this? Why? Right. What, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, so. I'm with, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
for people who would like to get involved with Imagine Black, whether it's, you know, with the nonprofit, uh, well, I guess both nonprofit, but, you know, with sort of the more community work or with the political work, how can they, how can they do that? Yeah, so the easiest way is to go to our website, um, just imagineblack.org. Um, and if you want to get really fancy, you can do imagineblack.org slash membership. Um, and what you're able to do is sign up to be a member. Um, it's free to join. Um, if you want to donate, you can, but it's, it's not required. Uh, we have a certain membership uh, that we call Kinfolk membership just for Black folks. And we have another space that's for non-Black folks to sustain the movement and get involved in ways that are appropriate without centering them in, in the Black space. Um, so come and join us. Um, uh, we ask that folks are committed to a few things. And um, the baseline for us is being committed to a Black queer feminist lens. Uh, we want folks to be committed to the idea that uh, we need to center Black folks who are most impacted. We need to center Black undocumented folks and trans folks and gender nonconforming folks and Black youth and Black elders and Black queer folks. It's like, and there's so, and immigrants and refugees. And I think uh, it's really easy for us to um, stereotype who the Black person we should be engaged with when really there's so many folks. And if it doesn't, if our solutions don't involve them and benefit them, then um, it's not going to work. Like trickle down anything never works. Like we've seen it with the economy. We're still waiting for these trickle down effects of the COVID funds for all these big corporations. Like it's going to come down to us. That will never come down to us. Um, so like, what would it look like to flip that model where we make this, uh, we make solutions and dream up solutions that work for the most impacted and everyone benefits. I mean, we've seen that with the civil rights union, civil rights uh, movement, uh, for example, like white women benefited like crazy from all the black stuff that happened in that time. You know, Latinx folks, Asian folks, they all benefited. White people in general, they benefited from the struggles and um, the, the push for democracy that black people have been pushing. Um, guys, I forgot the article, but there was, uh, what's her name? This amazing black journalist. She was here in Portland and she wrote for this uh, 1619. But oh, Nicole Hannah-Jones? Yes, that's it. I've never met Nicole. And I'm sad. I think we just missed each other, but uh, there was that article in New York Times that said, you know, America wasn't a democracy, a democracy until black people made it. Like we, we are like the champions of democracy. Like we are pushing for it to really be true, not just in word, but in deed. And um, so, yeah, I would just invite folks to join us. If you're down for a black core feminist lens, if you're down with our mission and vision, uh, if you do it soon, there's opportunities for you to get involved with this endorsement process. But beyond that, there's a lot of ways that we're trying to digitally connect us, but also once the world opens up, uh, connect us uh, more intimately so that we can build community as we kind of vision. Um, but we, I, I will say that just as short that we believe that politics is one of the tools. We are not, um, we don't put all of our eggs into one basket, but we do know that with politics, with organizing, with leadership development, these are the three that we believe if they were to work in more concert with each other, we would get the results that we need. So um, yeah, we just want folks to join us. Go to imagineblack.org. You can also find us on the socials if you go to Imagine Black and uh, you can kind of dive in and get involved with the work that we do. And we have some cool kind of uh, kind of geographic crews where we organize folks based off what neighborhood they live in, as well as um, topic areas that they're interested in. Um, and then also again, just engaging with us on some campaigns. Awesome. Well, well, there you go. Uh, if you want to get involved at, you know, imagineblack.org. Uh, Joy, thank you again for taking the time with me today. It's always great talking with you. And, you know, I look forward to seeing all the stuff that Imagine Black has going. Thank you so much for the space. Yeah. Thank you for watching. Please like and share and subscribe so you can stay up to date on all of the latest videos. Thank you.